0: Today's reading is Matthew twenty-two, fifteen 15 through 22. They can be found on page 912 of the Bibles next to your seats and not on the screen. <laughs> this is God's Word. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians' teacher, they said. We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? It is right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not. But Jesus said, knowing their evil intent. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. During the um,
1: 2004, I'm trying to remember if that's right. No, 2008 election. 2004 didn't seem right. During the 2008 election for president, um, I was still using Facebook regularly, don't really anymore. And I put this on my, as a Facebook status, something like this: Wow, things are getting really divisive. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's the getting close to, the, to November, and it, it was getting really nutty especially online. And then what happened is my feed, uh, the, it only took about four or five comments for the comment section to be a, become like a, a self-fulfilled prophecy of what I had just written. <laughs> it became so incredibly divisive in the comments. And suddenly I had people from different phases of my life, different geographies, now battling each other with anger and vitriol. And I became extremely uncomfortable. And I now know that there's part of my personality. You can chart this out with different personality tests where I'm, I'm, I like things to be in harmony. And I like, their, <laughs> I like things to be at peace. And that's one of my kind of defining traits is as a peacemaker. And so this suddenly got very uncomfortable for me, even though I wasn't doing the arguing. I was just watching it happen as if I had set the stage for it. And um, I was kind of horrified, very uncomfortable. And so I deleted the entire post. (laughs) I finally got so much, I'm like, ah, click. And I just wiped it all out so that it would be no more. And then my phone started ringing 10 seconds later (laughs) from one of the area codes where I used to live. So I knew, and I didn't answer it, because like I said, I'm, uh, conflict. There's probably a lot more of me in there than I intended to share, but we get this way with politics. And, um, you know, eight years later, so this is where I reference one of these books Eight years later, it, it was happening again, and David Zoll writes about it in this book. He says, I remember after Donald Trump was elected, those who supported Hillary Clinton complained openly and often of severe anxiety and stress. It wasn't just the run-of-the-mill, let's all move to Canada stuff. A friend from college told me she couldn't sleep because she was so scared of what might happen. A doctor told me that his anger at the president-elect was getting in the way of his ability to treat patients. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. There's always a new way to enter into that anxiety in one way or another. Right now, what do we have? What's, what's the one-word summary of a lot of the news in American politics right now? Yep, there we go. Impeachment. Did anybody say anything different? (laughs) I don't think so. That would be intriguing if someone said something different. Impeachment. So there's a long list, really. It's not just whatever the big thing is right now in the news. In fact, often people are frustrated that you know, once impeachment takes the front page, well then now, you know, mass shootings is no longer talked about, or gun control, and, and now immigration just kind of fell to the wayside, but Just give it a few months, it'll be back to the front page, and you'll have that to lose sleep over again. A long list of important issues that call for your attention and tug on your loyalty, and call for your votes and your posts and your outrage and your donations. You think about it what we really got to get to the bottom of, in a way, is that politics can kind of become where we are putting our hopes. Because these stories are so front page, because they're on every stream of information that's coming at you, and maybe they touch the issues touch your lives as well, it's very easy to put really all your essential hopes on... The politics of our day, you know, the things we hope that iron themselves out with the legislation, with an election. And essentially, I think what I'm struggling to put into words is that basically, what in this book called Seculosity is getting at that with every issue we've dealt with, whether it's food or leisure and on and on and on, romance, parenting. What's keeping you awake at night? What's driving the ship of your life? And whatever might be stressing you out and keeping you awake at night, that's a pretty good indicator of where kind of your deepest parts of you are prioritizing and are putting their hopes in. And we're going to look at Matthew 22 here that was just read, this encounter with Jesus over paying of the tax. And what we realize is that this is the promise. I give you a bit of like the heads up before we prove the point. The point is this. Our encounter with God can drastically and should drastically relativize the effect of the political concerns that are agitating all around us. I didn't say it makes them irrelevant. I just said Your encounter with God should drastically relativize the effect that the political agitations have on your life. To get at this and to get at this story, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Sort of my pride gets in the way sometimes of just doing this um, because I want to put it in my fancy words. But I'm I'm just going to read what this um, New Testament theologian named N.T. Wright, what he writes about this story, because he says it better and more succinctly than I could. And he, it, there's a lot packed into this story, this simple kind of, should we pay the tax? Give me the coin. Whose inscription's on it? Okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar, to God's what is God's. Those are some of the highlights. There's a lot packed in there that we don't get because we're not living in the time. We don't know what the Facebook arguments were of first century. And Tom Wright is a historian, scholar of the New Testament, so he knows, and I'm just going to read what he says because he nails it. Okay. Let me make sure I start at the right point and end at the right point. Okay. So, one of the most... Uh, Wait, maybe, am I not starting at the right point? Let me see. Hold on. Don't stress out. I got this. (laughs) I'm not stressing out. I just want to make sure I start in the right place. I spoke at a men's retreat last night, and I came back this morning, so I'm a little fuzzy here. Okay. Okay, yeah, I have to read this part. I was about to start too late and miss this. Okay. Trick questions that put people on the spot have been around as long as there have been public issues and leaders offering new programs. This one, the story, which the Pharisees put to Jesus had an obvious double edge. The issue of paying tax to the Roman emperor was one of the hottest topics in the Middle East in Jesus's day. Imagine how you'd like it if you woke up one morning and discovered that people from the other end of the world had marched into your country and demanded that you pay them tax as the reward for having your land stolen. That sort of thing still causes riots and revolutions, and it had done just that when Jesus was growing up in Galilee. One of the most famous Jewish leaders when Jesus was a boy, a man called Judas, had led a revolt precisely on this issue. The Romans had crushed it mercilessly, leaving crosses around the countryside with the dead and dying revolutionaries on them as a warning that paying the tax was compulsory, not optional. The Pharisees' question came, as we would say, with a health warning. Tell people they, w- they shouldn't pay, And you might end up on a cross. At the same time, of course, anyone leading a kingdom of God movement, which we we know if you're reading the stories about Jesus, he seemed to be doing that. Anyone leading a kingdom of God movement would be expected to oppose the tax or face the ridicule and resentment of the people. Surely the whole point of God being king was that Caesar wouldn't be. If Jesus was intending to get rid of the tax and all that it meant... What had they followed him, uh, if he wasn't intending that, what had they followed him into Galilee for? Why had they all shouted Hosanna a few days earlier? If Jesus had been a politician on a television program, you can imagine the audience's delight and the producer's glee when someone asked this question. This one will really give him a hard time. Before Jesus answers, he asks them for a coin. rather asking them for a coin is really the beginning of his answer, the start of a strategic outflanking move. When they produce the coin, the dinar that was used to pay the tax, they are showing that they themselves are handling the hated currency. And I'll just, an aside, he doesn't mention this, but that's why Jesus starts by calling them hypocrites. You know, there's kind of like a, that's hit the route he's going to go with this. Among the reason it was hated was that on the coin, Jews weren't allowed, uh, or or, part of the reasons it was hated because of what was on the coin. Jews weren't allowed to put images of people, human faces, on their coins. But Caesar, of course, had his image stamped on his. And around the edge of the coin, proclaiming to all all the world who he was, Caesar had words that would send a shudder through any loyal or devout Jew. Son of God, high priest, doesn't that open up the issue of him saying, hand me a coin, show me what's on it? We watch the scene. Or oh, he finishes by saying, how could, any happy, how could any Jew be happy to handle stuff like that? We watch the scene as Jesus takes the coin from them like someone being handed a dead rat. He looks at it with utter distaste. Whose is this image? And who is it who gives himself an inscription like that? He's already shown what he thinks of Caesar, but he hasn't said anything that could get him in trouble. He has turned the question around and is ready to throw it back at them. It's Caesar's, they reply, starts stating the obvious, but admitting that they themselves carry Caesar's image, Caesar's coinage. Well then, says Jesus, and the wording is important, You'd better pay Caesar back in his own coin, hadn't you? Astonishment. What did he mean? Paying Caesar back in his own coin sounded like revolution, but standing here with the coin in his hand, it sounded as though he was saying you should pay the tax. And you'd better pay God back in his own coin too. More astonishment. Did he mean that the kingdom of God was more important than the kingdom of Caesar after all? Or what? And then I'll just close with these couple of lines and questions. He was countering the Pharisees' challenge to him with a sharp challenge in return. It was after all, or sorry, was it after all they who were compromised? Had they really given full allegiance to their God? Were they themselves playing games, keeping Caesar happy while speaking of God? Kind of fascinating, right, to get uh, some of the layers peeled off of that story. It helped me understand it a lot better. I've never studied that passage, and it kind of opened my mind up. So one of the things I started to realize with this story is that there was a political conversation of Jesus' day, much like the ones we have that we, in 2008, were bantering back and forth in the comment sections of Facebook and elsewhere. And Jesus' voice in the conversation, what is his voice like in that conversation? He refuses to be typecast and pigeonholed, you would not find Jesus stepping into the well-worn arguments of his day, one way or the other. So, if the Christian church represents Jesus, how are we doing at that? How, you know, and by we, you can think of that however you want. We as this church, we, you know, whatever Christians are considered to be on the news or the church, big prominent Christian leaders. How are we doing at not entering into the well-worn ruts of the arguments politically of our day? Jesus found ways to sidestep the predictable positions but not just out of how it might be for me i already told you my secret conflict avoidance <laughs> that's not why jesus that's not what jesus was doing cuz he then comes through always as he does in this story with a new even more consequential statement and message i'm not this i'm not going to fall into that rut i'm not going to fall into that rut and everyone goes well okay he's avoiding conflict he doesn't want to no I'm this, and everyone kind of goes like an earthquake just went through the building. And so, what we get is, I'll just put this in terms of two things that I think we got to hear is that there's two eclipses, really. Jesus eclipsing in the realm of our political agitations. One is that uh, God is above politics, so God eclipses politics. In importance, I guess. So in a way, this story is saying, Jesus is saying, this measly tax? Sure. Give that to, go for it. Just give it to, so what? It's a way of minimi- minimizing the political realm because you're so convinced of the hugeness and the consequential nature of of the God above that political realm and the God that's working in and through subversively all over in our world. That measly tax, go ahead. When the apartment or the house next door to you or me opens up and you know, they're searching for a tenant or they're searching for a buyer, what often is the worst thing could ha- that could happen? Well, if you're a conservative, the worst thing is that a liberal moves in next door you're praying that God won't bring a liberal. If you're a liberal, you're praying that God won't bring a conservative. Interesting. What would happen if, in, if there was a community of people that were following Jesus that actually acted like God was bigger than politics? You know, how might that shift how that scenario of a neighbor moving in, how might that shift that? How might things shift and change if, on a regular basis, you have, you're developing your best friendships with other people who also have this sort of God-Jesus allegiance first and can relativize with you, who disagrees completely with them on how to vote. You can both kind of relativize that thing, your voting record, because you have this primary allegiance and importance that you found a way to eclipse all that other stuff. You pray together, you support each other, you bring meals to each other, you pray for them when something's going on with their kids or their health or their parents. They're in your heart. Why? Because you're able to somehow find that God eclipsed the politics. So that's one thing, I think, that comes out of this. Another thing that's at work, another kind of eclipsing that's at work in this story is with respect to... The cross. I like how the historian, Tom Wright, brings out the importance of the background of the tax and the crosses dotting the landscape. This is already a story very much foreshadowing the danger that Jesus is walking into. The people trying to trap him, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they want the narrative... the the cross narrative for Jesus to be very much around the political issue of the day. They want him to end up on the cross because of the tax issue, the predictable rut of their day. And then sort of the surprise as you follow the journey out just a few chapters, the journey of Jesus is that he does take a journey to the cross, but it will not be on those minuscule terms. It will not be over some small issue of tax and of an oppressor coming in and taking over the country. Because Jesus views that, as huge as that was to their lives, he views that as a small issue compared to the terms on which he's going to the cross. That was a silly political squabble of their day versus the healing of this world at its core, the healing of all humanity in the deepest ways. Jesus' Jesus's terms would involve reconciling humanity's relationship with God and s- securing for all spiritual citizenship with the one king who matters most. There's something about this that if you, if, if you get it, if you get the terms on which Jesus did end up going to the cross... It's a story of God's grace that levels the playing field between different political interests. Because what we find out on, on Jesus' journey to the cross is it's not, I come for you and I don't come for you. I come for all. I did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says that, and there's irony, because he's actually not saying, I come only for a certain people. Sounds like he's saying I come for only the righteous people and he's but he's really saying I come for all and no one stands out as righteous in the end. So God's grace is the great leveler of the playing field. All of us are more of a mess than we care to admit. All of us also then through the cross are more loved and accepted than we ever imagine. And so if your new narrative even in today's political climate if your new dominant narrative is I'm forgiven And reconciled where it matters most. I'm forgiven and reconciled to the God of heaven and earth's throne, that king, and that one that's ultimately, even now, starting to make all things new and starting to put back the broken world and he'll finish it off someday. When that confidence is in your life every day, when you wake up, when those news clippings come in and those well, nobody has news clippings anymore, but you know, when the feed ticks across the screen and you get that notification, if you have that kind of confidence about the ultimate king that you've been reconciled and who's reconciling all things little by little, it can settle your agitations about politics. Again, let me go back to what I said at the beginning our encounter with God can relativize the effect of political concerns as they agitate all around us. So, in the end, if your political hackles are getting leveraged by the latest headline, you don't need better news. You need more of God's grace. Let's pray that that can happen. Our God of grace, we have plenty of opportunities to make this, um, to, to put this into practice because every day there's a new disturbing political headline. And we are right to care about those things. And often our faith and the grace that you give us leads us to compassionate caring about these things. So help us to have things in the right place, as we go about our lives, as we try to put politics in its right place, somehow may we find it to be true and to be weighty in our lives that you are the most important king. Amen.